John Lacas is a writer and public scholar whose research on transcendental teaching styles, quantum mechanics, and the nature of consciousness are available on Amazon Books, ProQuest Academic Libraries, and the Library of Congress. Tension is an overview of personal stories and recollections of lived experiences by ordinary people of extraordinary capacity. This podcast holds sway against the guise of middlebrow academic correctness. Tension Podcast is the counterpoint for smart people who understand the nature of conflict as they dance with opinion and deviate from convention. And from the Ross Stewart Andrew Studio in Seattle, Washington, you're on the Tension Podcast. I'm Dr. John LeCasse, and it's Boxing Day, December 26th, 2020. Last time we spoke, we talked about artificial intelligence. And we spoke about um, whether or not artificial intelligence can duplicate the hard problem in terms of awareness or consciousness or anything that has to do with um, a close approximation to human response or human activity. Both sides of the argument of the what is known as the hard problem universally, which is the problem of consciousness in science, both sides deal in logic. But they deal in logic in different arenas. One is the logic of mathematics, and the other is pure logic outside of computation. One is lines and planes and surfaces, and the other one is smoke. Some people call it woo. Some people call it smoke and mirrors. What we know for sure is that the hard science community that is recognized principally, probably since the uh, 13th century, does not believe that these people who have a sense of what's going on just because they exist have any credibility compared to those who can lay it to paper with a protractor and a compass and a uh, pencil. So how does that, where does that leave the fight then between these two or the argument or the distrust? Because they don't trust each other, that's for sure. Uh, sometimes it becomes so vehement that the one side will stand up in an an, uh, auditorium and openly um, attack a speaker. That happened uh, when uh, Deepak Chopra was speaking one time and um, Leonard Mladenow got up and accused him of being a fraud and a fake. Both of those men have high credentials in their specific arenas. They're both worthwhile. Mladenow couldn't help himself. You know, he's a Caltech guy and uh, he just thought that he had to just say something because he was, I think he one time maybe did a paper with... um, Stephen Hawking, and uh, that caused him to feel, kind of puff himself up when he was faced with a speech by Deepak Chopra. You know, anybody that's been close to Hawking uh, must feel pretty good about themselves, uh, intellectually or socially. Not long ago, in the 1980s, when uh, Hawking came to Seattle, uh, we had an occasion uh, through a friend of mine to uh, deal with him, and you know, I mean, it's a fact of the matter. He was like a sack of potatoes with a tuner on the top. There's no doubt about that. But but when you're in the light of someone like that, I, I had an occasion to spend some time with Hawking. And when you're in that kind of light, when you're standing in the shadow of that guy, that person, none of that matters. It just doesn't. And, of course, he was a uh, hard science guy. But when you're in his light, it doesn't matter. Nobody gets out a piece of paper and pencil to try and figure out whether or not they're comfortable when they're sitting next to Stephen Hawking. And he and I were with arm's length of each other for a long time. So I didn't ever feel like I needed to prove I was with him on paper. One of the nice things about theoretical physics is that you get to think about problems in a very 
gauzy general sense before you have to put them into the elegance of mathematics. And of course, if they don't fit, then you can get exercised about that. And Gödel, uh, who walked with Einstein at Princeton for years, in fact, um, when when Einstein was an old man and he thought that his work was had probably uh, run its course, and he didn't have to go to Princeton anymore for sure, he went to Princeton to his office every day anyway, just so he could walk to class with Gödel, who was coming up with probably the most significant mathematical theorem in the history of, of uh, numbers. Gödel came up with an incompleteness theorem that had to do with, again, mathematics. And that's where the AI people run into their biggest stumbling block because the the number one man in the elegant business of mathematics came up with incompleteness theorems that told the AI people before the fact and ongoing that they're not going to get there. They're never going to make it because there are certain things in the logic of the elegance of mathematics that even though they can perform them effortlessly do not end up in an answer. No matter how complicated the activity, there's still no answer. And I don't care how clear-cut the computational rules are that they study, there's still no answer. And that seems to be hidden in in the closet of artificial intelligence proponents. They're going to, like, pretend that Gödel didn't do it. You know, he was a Czech-born mathematician that was so concerned and paranoid about what he was doing that he ended up starving himself to death. He died a relatively young man because he was just obsessed about, um, first of all, what the faculty thought of him at Princeton— <laughs> Which is, it doesn't make any sense because Einstein was in love with him. Uh, but anyway, poor guy killed himself, and I'm sorry about that because uh, there was a lot more to learn from him. But the most important thing for our podcast here, because we are sort of pedestrians on the sidewalk, is that it's incomplete. His theorem was incomplete. He could not come to, he just, he, what he did is he told us there are some things in the cosmos that mathematics cannot compute. I mean, imagine that. And people like Roger Penrose, Sir Roger Penrose, he's been knighted by the Queen, understand that and they believe it, but they continue to fight on behalf of the possibility that the elegance of mathematics will figure out a way to fully understand the hard problem of consciousness. While Kurt Gödel, the Czech mathematician, the best of all time, said, "Uh uh-uh, no, boys, you're not going to get there. Not going to happen. What's remarkable about that is that On the face of the non-abstract part of math, we still have the same two sides with the same kind of balance in tension with one another, neither one believing the other side. So for our purposes, how do we put this into a context that we can understand? One of the premier activities in the world that has to do with with the binary decision-making is chess, the game of chess. Recently, I, I bought a a manuscript from the 13th century that goes back to the original, some of the original, at least on record, chess moves that were brought to Europe from the Middle East. And it's very interesting, um, maybe interesting is an overused word, but it's, it's, it's uh, enlightening to see how society dealt with a board game so many years ago. But we didn't have artificial intelligence then, so men principally not women then, of course, but men, played the game. My question then 
what a wrap on this podcast has to do with whether or not the most sophisticated binary computers in the world are playing the game of chess when they are put up against chess masters. If there's a man on one side of the table or a man or a woman on one side of the table and a computer on the other side, which one of those positions is playing the game of chess? To put that in context, again, we know that, that the computer is is being programmed to interpret and analyze all the decisions of which there are many that have to be made each time a chess piece moves. It's a yes or no process that goes on almost to infinity about how to move that piece. But there's no thought there. The person across from the computer is doing the same thing, but is also thinking about the interpretation that's being made from across the table of what that person might do. What are the emotions of how to take a piece? Some of the greatest games ever have been won or lost on how the computer made a decision to not lose its resources as opposed to make good decisions that would have to do with protection. If you don't know the game of chess, you might not understand what I just said, but, but here's the thing. I get back to the original question. Who's playing the game? Which, which side of that table is playing the game? And my, may, maybe you can use any board game. Maybe it's not just chess, any board game, but who's playing the game? If you have a machine that is programmed on 64 squares to decide how many moves are available per move, per piece, under any combination of that 64 squares you can imagine, you can now if you think about that, the number is staggering. And here's what we've learned about who's playing the game and who isn't. If you put a computer against a person, and if you time the move so that the move, each move has to be, say, under five seconds, the computer will typically win. But as you add time to the process of playing the game, the people begin to win. And that has to do with thought. And that has to do with the hard problem. Consciousness, thinking. One side of that thing is thinking, the other side isn't. The computer is doing manufactured responses based on mathematical inputs to squares. The person is thinking about options as well as the emotions of how that piece is played based on the psyche of the other side. And if the other side has no emotional input to the game, that's lost. If the, if the other side doesn't understand the drama around a board game, then that is lost. And that, that's part of the arsenal that doesn't exist. That's also part of the hard problem in analyzing consciousness versus binary response, it's also lost. That's what Gödel was talking about. Who's playing the game here? I wrote a, a letter one time about an interview process, and it was and, and it was it was a polemic that I wrote that had to do with ref, um, cover letters because I really don't believe in cover letters, and the reason I don't is because most cover letters are read with optical drives so that they can get through the process and look for keywords. And there's no thought going on there. An optical drive looks for keywords, delivers the keywords to the recruiter, and the recruiter decides if there was enough keywords picked up by the optical drives to have this letter be read for further consideration. Now, playing a game of chess the same way. If the optical drive of the computer is unemotional about the letter or about the game, the letter's not being read and the game is not being played. Life is not about 
keywords picked up on optical drives. It's not about options for moves in, in 64 squares. It's about thought. And that's the rub. That's where the problem comes. That's what Penrose keeps firewalling himself with because he, even though he wants to find it, he's beginning to introduce the word God into his transcripts more frequently these days. And he just won the Nobel Prize in physics. So what do you think? Should we talk about God next time? Maybe we should do that. In the meantime, if you play a game of chess, play it with a person, because at least you're both going to get to think about the game. I'll see you next time. <music>